Hey guys, today we have Professor Heather Williams, a biologist, neuroscientist, and professor at Williams College. Keep listening to learn about how bird songs change over time, cultural versus genetic evolution, how Professor Williams almost got arrested, and a little more. Over there, yep. Yep. Yay! Hi, Professor Williams, how are Hello, you? Hello, Anika. It's nice to do this across continents. Yeah, I haven't done this in a while, so I'm pretty rusty with my social skills, too, because of the virus, too. <laughs> and I've never done it, so I'm going to be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so anything new in your life with the virus and all? Have you picked up any I keep hobbies? testing negative, and that's a good thing. Yeah. And um, it's it feels good to have a president who cares about <laughs> whether people live or die from the virus, and it was... <laughs> I don't know if you got to see the the um, press conference with Anthony Fauci the day after the inauguration. Mm-hmm. He was practically giddy about being allowed to tell the <laughs> truth with no consequences. I mean, did you find it harder to teach in a more politically uh, volatile environment? Well, I was not, as you know, very good about hiding my political views. Yeah. And it was kind of you all to be tolerant of that. um would you say actually i've always been curious because i feel like biologists and definitely most of the scientists would have a much better idea of the virus and how it's evolving um were you able to keep up with all the studies on um i wasn't able to keep up with everything but um you know, I followed some of it, like, for example, the, as you know, in Britain, there is this new, more contagious mm-hmm. version that spreads more rapidly. And evolutionarily, that makes sense, because if you think about it from the virus's point of view, and of course, a virus isn't conscious, but selection acts on it. Mm-hmm. A virus that is good at infecting people will infect more people. And so it will win against a strain that's less good at infecting people. And similarly, although we don't know for sure that this is happening, a virus that makes people sick and spread it is going to do better than a virus that kills people because then it can't spread as well. Now, we don't know if that's happened with the coronavirus, but it has happened with other viruses and and bacteria in the past. So it's possible. I mean, it's also true that we're testing many more people right now, so we're going to see many more positive cases and the death rate will appear to be lower because we're picking up more people who actually have it. I see. But it may also be that the virus is becoming less lethal. Do you do you feel more comfort or fear if like as you understand the information coming out? Well, I, I come from a long line of women who want to know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> And I have passed this on to my daughter. And mm-hmm. we all feel more comfortable if we know things rather than being kept in the dark. I see. That makes sense. I mean, I feel like, because I, I stopped reading the news because it was just so much coming at me at once mm-hmm. for a while. But now that I'm trying to keep up again, I'm simultaneously... I simultaneously feel better about knowing what's going on, but also more scared because I feel like now there's all this information about like, you know, the death rates and stuff that I 
didn't keep up with before. So yeah, sometimes it can feel like too much. And I guess Mm -hmm. towards the end of the fall, the political scene got that way for me and I stopped following that. So I can understand Mm -hmm. how people would feel that way about the virus too. Do you still go out like for walks? With with a mask on, I go out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I take the dogs for walks. When we go in the woods, we don't wear masks because Mm -hmm. there's nobody else around. And when we do run into people, we just sort of back into the woods and let them pass from the trail. And, you know, I go to my office two or three times a week wearing a mask and there's almost nobody there. It almost feels like. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I, in one sense, of course, like with everything going on, it seems horrible. But also when I was taking my flight to London from LA, I have never seen the airport so empty and the airplanes. On the airplane, you could spread across several seats, I bet. Yeah, like I basically had the plane to myself. (laughs) It was a huge plane. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sort of become the new normal. Uh, It's really funny. Um, I actually remember seeing the first article on the coronavirus, like back, way back when. I don't even know anymore. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, that's interesting. And then Mm -hmm. it turned into this huge thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. and and I've been reading about people who say, well, you know, um, even when it's over, whenever I'm not feeling well, I think I'll wear a mask to protect others. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Actually, um, my brother is uh, a jail worker. Mm-hmm. And he ended up, he and a bunch of other um, co-workers ended up getting corona mm-hmm. because um, yeah. they have to transfer inmates with the virus. Yeah. Yeah. And even though they wear the hazmat suits, um, the jails are not meant for like social distancing. So right. it's really dangerous. Yeah. But he has recovered. Oh, yeah. He's okay, healthy. Good. Thankfully. Thankfully. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, I hope you don't mind that I did a little stalking on you. <laughs> it's out there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was really surprised to see your Wikipedia page because they, I, you know. I have, a, I have never looked at it because. Really? <laughs> I wouldn't, I'd probably find things on there that would annoy me. And so. Mm-hmm. You should correct it. Yeah, but, but if. It just feels too too much of an ego trip to go look. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> I just saw you as, you know, a neuroscience prof, a biologist, and I just assumed you would study what you taught me, like sensory biology. <laughs> but then it labeled you, the page labels you as an ornithologist. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, I think that's, that's kind of an odd thing because I think those kinds of terms are a little bit outdated because oh. although I study what I study in birds, mm-hmm. it's because the birds are a good model system for what I study, not because I'm really into birds. Oh, oh okay. I thought you were just really into birds. <laughs> well, I enjoy birds, but you know, if you look at the biology department, there are three members of the biology department who are better at identifying birds than I am in the wild. Mm. what do you study and what made birds such a good model well pretty much all my career i've studied bird song which is learned and is very similar learned in a way that's very similar to the way we learn human speech so baby birds go through many of the same stages baby songbirds the ones that learn go through many of the same stages that infant humans do 
and sort of first listening to see which sounds are important and then starting to make the sounds and calibrate the vocal organs so they know what what form of waggling your mouth and your vocal cords and your lips, what sound that makes. And then trying to reproduce the sounds they've heard. Mm. And deafening has pretty much the same effect on speech for both speech or song for both humans and birds. And there's a number of other ways that there are, there's a critical period early in development for both bird song learning and for speech learning. And if you don't get the basics, then it's very, very hard to recover. Wow, I had no idea that they were so closely related. Well, they're not closely related. It's convergent evolution. So ah, it looks okay. like I mean, the, if you look at the circuits in the brain, the circuits, if you draw them just as circuits, they look quite similar, but they're using different parts of the brain to do the same things. I see. So it's, it's, it looks like there's, if you're trying to compare what you hear and what you say, you have to take auditory information and motor information and take it somewhere to compare it. And then you have to have a memory module that remembers what you've heard already and compare to that again. And so the circuits that do that when you draw them look very similar. But then when you say, okay, what's, parts of the brain are these centers in they move around a bit wow so how did you get interested in birdsong it seems like a really specific it does doesn't it well i started out as an undergraduate doing an honors thesis on sea scallops and starfish (laughs) (laughs) which sounds a long way away yeah But I was interested in looking at the nervous system of the scallop, which is really quite simple, although they have nice camera eyes that can see very well, and thinking about how do they respond to an approaching starfish. Mm-hmm. And an approaching starfish comes at them fairly slowly. Starfish don't yeah. move super fast. And so you know, their, their nervous system works at a pace that can deal with that. And what the scallops do then is they figure out where the starfish is approaching from. And then they squirt a jet of water at the starfish, which sends the starfish tumbling one way and the scallop scooting off in the other direction. And then, of course, the the starfish may sort of come back and over the next two or three hours try again. (laughs) So it's sort of a slow motion interaction. So I I was interested in thinking about how animals interact. Mm -hmm. But then I, I sort of felt after doing that 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 was too simple, that I needed something more complicated where animals actually communicated with each other. So animals from the same species had to do the interesting thing of saying something or signaling something that sent a message and changed the behavior of another member of the same species. And so animal communication and the nervous system behind that became a big interest. And I still wanted to do the ocean. I was into marine biology. So I spent a year after college basically in the Red Sea following flashlight fish around. Oh. And flashlight fish are small. They're maybe 10 centimeters long. And tucked under each eye inside the orbit, they have what's called a a light organ, Mm -hmm. which has a lot of luminescent bacteria in it. And then they can raise and lower the eyelid over those bacteria which they're culturing (laughs) in this organ, and so they can blink their lights on and off at night. And flashlight fish only come out at night, and they swim along, and they have sort of a default pattern, but then when they're near other flashlight fish, they change that pattern. And so I grew quite interested in that. 
And then, you know, I did some other stuff with fish. But after a while, it can be difficult to do neuroscience on sea fish that live in salt water Mm -hmm. and that you have to catch in the wild and bring into the lab. And you rarely have, except for maybe at Woods Hole, a place where you have the equipment to do neuroscience and accessibility to the, the fish. I see. And these were tropical fish. And I was working in at Rockefeller University in Manhattan, New York. And, you know, I did, I did try for a while, but it was just too hard. And so the lab I was working in, I had chosen it because they were interested in animal communication and they were doing birdsong. And I remember at the point where I decided, okay, enough with the fish. I want to work with the birds <laughs> because I can actually get something done and learn something. And my, my advisor had kind of become enamored of the fish and he was trying to encourage me not to try again. I'm like, no, I've been no. trying and I can't try anymore. <laughs> Did you have to catch the fish yourself? Yeah. And then I had to bring oh, them wow. back to the U.S. And then I had to get them through customs. <laughs> And the trick with the flashlight fish is if you expose them to light, they die. Oh, my God. It blinds them, and so they can't see. And so you bring them back in these sealed-up containers with, you know, extra oxygen in there. And you bring them to customs, and you say, you can't open this. You can look at it in an x-ray machine if you want, but you can't open this. Do they listen and to you? They... Do they not open it? Well... <laughs> I have to say, eventually, they usually ended up asking me out. (laughs) I was younger then. (laughs) And I seem to usually get the young male customs officials. But usually, they eventually decided that it was too much trouble, and they just let me go. This was too weird. They could feel that there was water in there sloshing around. (laughs) It just wasn't worth it. I clearly wasn't going to let them open them. I was going to outlast them no matter what was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Unintentional dates at customs. <laughs> <laughs> we never yeah. had a date. It may have been partly joking on their part. It may have been just sort of interest. <laughs> Weird people. <laughs> Maybe they like the mystery. <laughs> yeah, that was the time of my life when I also was regularly being suspected of being a spy too so it was suspected of being a spy i was actually arrested once how how did that happen well i have to admit it was due to my stupidity (laughs) so i'd been on a long hike in the desert near the red sea and i'd come out on a road and i was going to walk down the road back to town and I'd had, you know, I had a camera with a really long lens and I had binoculars so I could do some nature watching and everything. And so I'm walking back down to town. I probably wasn't thinking clearly. <laughs> and there were some interesting birds on a wire. And I looked at them through the binoculars, not assimilating the fact that the wire was in an army camp that was guarding the pass that went into town. That's a wild. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I was arrested and taken in until somebody came and vouched for me. Oh, okay. So they they didn't believe you and you just Mm -hmm. said, I'm not a spy. Well, I think they sort of believed that I was as stupid as I was. (laughs) But they wanted somebody to vouch for me to say that this really is somebody who lives in this town and, you know, works with fish and so on. (laughs) That must have been so scary, though. (laughs) You know, I I was young and dumb. I wasn't scared. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I don't know. I feel like I'm young and dumb, but I'm pretty easily scared. (laughs) 
can I say? I wasn't scared of that. <laughs> so on your research, then, is birdsong typically considered a simple form of language? Well, it depends on who you talk to. Because you have to look and see what the definition of language is. And what's interesting to those of us who study birdsong is that the definition of language has evolved. From when you began. As, more and, as, as, as we are able to show more and more things that birds can do with songs, people keep adding more things to the definition of language. There used to be about five or six mm -hmm. things, and now it's up to into the 20s. Oh, wow. Do you know what the first, so, the original five qualities were? I can't probably remember them correctly, but um, a signaling system using the auditory vocal channel, that would be two. Um, learned, that would be three. During a critical period would be four. <laughs> By imitation. And then, then you got onto things like can be used to deceive others has a grammar <laughs> that matters, you know. <laughs> Is there a reason it has to keep evolving as opposed to kind of involving well, just like, oh, these are all now different types of language? Well, the cynical view would be that the people who make these different, they add these characteristics to language want language to be unique to humans. I see. So that would be the cynical view. And so as soon as people show that, say, birds can lie using their learned oh. vocalizations. They have to add another one on to rule out birdsong. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Would you say it is a form of language? or It's, I mean, again, it depends on what you want to do. It's certainly a species-specific learned vocal communication system that carries meaning due to both order or syntax or in semantics or or the signal itself mm -hmm. the components of the signal itself and so if you were to ask me i would say sure sure <laughs> <laughs> but if you were to ask a you know somebody who studies human language they would say no ah okay they would say it's not complicated enough it's really interesting how like because science is so technical but i feel like because it's so technical, it's hard for maybe like the average person to try to um, understand the technicalities of everything. But it has to be put in like an understandable label. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and that's why I think worrying about the definition of language, even though I brought it up, is probably not productive. I see. <laughs> it's a it's a communication system that has many parallels to human language and human speech, and so. It's an interesting way of thinking about communication, and it you know it shows shines some light on the parallels, shines some light on how human language must have evolved. Does your does your understanding of birdsong change your view of people or birds? I guess probably not, no. <laughs> not really. No, I always imagine like scientists have a very different perspective of animals, including humans. But the more I talk to like professors of biology and neuroscience, it doesn't seem to be the case. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I would say anybody who studies animal behavior, which has a lot of these sexually selected signals of males showing off to attract female, 
sometimes looks at some human male showing off as being similar to <laughs> that's really funny actually <laughs> they have a deeper understanding of how or the intentions i suppose <laughs> mm -hmm. the intention is to impress and attract yes <laughs> going from your research um how did you end up as a professor at williams well you know it was when i was in college it was an interesting time a lot of the colleges such as Williams, had just gone co-ed. And professors there, while they sort of in principle thought, yeah, women are as good as men, weren't used to thinking that way. Oh, really? And so, for example, my thesis advisor in college was thinking I could be somebody's research assistant would be a good goal for me. Oh, but not... Uh... And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm going to have research assistants. <laughs> And my PhD advisor um, really was struggling with the idea of, you know, everybody wants children and women are better adapted for taking care of children and should women really have a career if they're going to have children. And, you know, he was an interesting person for talking about this, these views openly. Mm. <laughs> and there were, other, there were other people around who didn't talk about these things and who basically said, yes, women should have careers. But the interesting thing was, is my PhD advisor, if you brought him data, mm -hmm. they were data. It didn't matter who had them. Oh, okay. He thought they were, they were cool. He'd put you forward. He'd make opportunities for you to show what you could do. And some of the others who were sort of, if you just listened to what they said, were more willing to promote women didn't do it the same way for women and men, promoted men more than they did women. That's really interesting. And so mine, if you listened to what he said, you would go, oh my God, how could anybody manage it with a, such a sexist supervisor? But if you watched how women in his, who went through his lab succeeded, they all did well because he had promoted their careers based on their abilities rather than anything else. That is really interesting. I mean, in so one way, that's respectable, but also that I suppose he can separate the science from his... Well, and, and I think he was honestly struggling with it. And then he had a daughter, and then he figured it all out. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I know, like, this is coming up more often at Williams, too, but would you say this is still an issue at... I think... I think that it is much less of an issue than it was. It's sort of like, I mean, sexism, particularly sexism directed at white women, is nothing compared to racism we have mm -hmm. in this country. But there was a time when it was almost as bad. And so I think it's really important for people like me, for example, to remember that when I came to Williams, a lot of men older men professors here figured I had just been hired because I was a woman over men who were better qualified because they needed more women at Williams. And it's really important to keep that in mind and think about, you know, when you see people of color being hired into Williams, don't assume. Yeah. <laughs> assume that they are just as good as you were when you were hired. <laughs> And so I think that that helps me a little bit in not falling into that trap. I see. Is there something about um, becoming a professor that attracted you, like teaching? Well, you have to think about 
if you want to keep learning new stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> all your life, keep trying to discover things all your life, there are being a professor is a great job for that. Because you're in effect being, you're not just being paid to convey knowledge. Mm -hmm. You're being paid to also create new knowledge to convey. I see. Because it comes with research. (laughs) Yes. Uh But it's also sort of the whole intellectual thing is that, you know, knowledge isn't finished. (laughs) Knowledge is constantly being updated and, you know, tested and refined and new discoveries are made. And so this is the job that lets you do that. And of course, there's becoming a professor has various things that you could be a professor at a big research institution or at a liberal arts college would be one axis. And I had gone to liberal arts college and I kind of liked that environment. Mm -hmm. And I felt I could continue to do research there and use smart undergraduates as my research (laughs) assistants instead of instead of hiring people. Mm -hmm. Would you say there are fundamental changes in biology and neuroscience from when you were starting to learn, like taking intro classes? I think I started just as neuroscience was taking Mm -hmm. off. But uh, the biggest changes that have come along since I've started have been, I think, imaging and genomics. So being able to manipulate genes and all the new kinds of imaging we can do to see things. Mm-hmm. And obviously computing things we can do where we can model things we, you know, we, there was just not enough computer time to do before in the old days. I mean, were there any um, new discoveries that you found hard to accept, like because it contradicted perhaps what you had learned before? Well, I'm trying to think about that. Um, and I don't think so. I think there must have been, but I've assimilated them. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I think that's the best way to say it. I'm sure there were things that I kind of resisted at first, mm-hmm. but then, you know, the data kind of hammered at home. And so now it's sort of part of my worldview. Mm. It's interesting. I think, um, I mean, maybe scientists are used to just like, if they have the data, then they have no choice but to accept it. But I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can che- you can wait for it to be checked, mm-hmm. but you know, if it's been checked and it's consistent, you kind of have to say, okay, that's the way the world is. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you? I mean, I think a lot of your classes are really, or at least the one that I was um, in with you, are very. Um, relevant as in like most of the studies we looked at are very recent research yeah i I mean sensory biology the course we did together Mm -hmm. you know if you look at except for vision you know most of it has been during my adult lifetime most of the main discoveries have been during my adult lifetime and many of them within the last 20 years so during your lifetime not necessarily adult lifetime but lifetime Mm -hmm. And so that's why that class is fun to teach. Yeah, I mean, it was fun to learn there. <laughs> and it's constantly being updated. And as you know, we talked about what's the channel for hearing, and we think we know what it is, but we thought we knew what it was five years ago, and it wasn't that. So I'm not willing to 
<laughs> say this is the channel for hearing because I've been proven wrong too many times when I've taught it. <laughs> and of course, my own research has shifted over the years. Oh, from when you first started with yeah, from when I first started, I was really a hardcore neurophysiologist. Mm -hmm. Can you can you um say what that would be in like layman's terms? I was recording electrical impulses from neurons. Ah, okay. Okay, and I was playing songs to birds, and I was um, recording electrical impulses that occurred in neurons when those um, when I played those stimuli. And I was, then I sort of started doing a little more neuroanatomy as well. I'd always done some neuroanatomy, looking for pathways and how different parts of the brain linked up to each other. And we published some of that. Mm -hmm. And then I started sort of shifting more and more towards behavior. Is there a reason so, for that or just a natural evolution? I think it may be a natural evolution in that one disadvantage of being a researcher at a small liberal arts college is that it's not as easy to keep up with the latest techniques. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so as time passes, the big labs at the big research universities are developing and mastering new techniques. And um, you could go figure those out on sabbaticals, but those that they probably require a lot of new equipment and retooling everything. I see. And so you get to the point where you go, okay, what problems can I address? What questions can I answer? What questions can I formulate that are sort of on a slightly different track than the big research universities, what they're doing? So you switched so over that, to... Um... I switched over to do more, more behavior. So thinking about, you know, okay, when birds, when zebra finches sing, they also dance. Wow. Yeah. And so is their song coordinated with their dance? And it turns out that it's not tightly locked, but it's pretty well coordinated. Oh, that's really interesting. And it looks like they learn some aspects of their dances from watching their fathers dance. Wow. To their songs. So, um, so I looked at that for a little while and then, you know, I've looked at some other things too. And right now what I'm doing is I'm looking at cultural evolution. Oh, among which birds is or birds using their songs and looking at saying, okay, over the generations, how does a population's song change? And so if you were to look at, say, human generations, say, oh, 10 generations, how long would that be? That would be about 300, 300 years. And as we know, a language changes a lot yeah. in 300 years. <laughs> But in birds, that's the equivalent of 10 years, because that's 10 generations in 10 years. And so we can look and say, all right, what parts of song, in effect, succeed and are passed on, and which parts of song are sort of discarded and no longer used, and how do they shift, and does it matter who sings them, does it matter what the content is? All of those kinds of questions are quite interesting, because... It's sort of parallel but different to evolution as we think about it in terms of genes. Oh, yeah, as in like which ones are discarded. Yeah, because a, a bird doesn't necessarily learn its song from its mother and father. It can choose to learn from anybody it hears. It can improvise. 
Oh, will they, they can, improvise? Yeah, they will improvise. They'll add something new to their songs, or they'll take something old and shift it. Oh, that's really interesting. And so they can they can change things dramatically in one generation. Then some of these changes, other birds find them really cool, and they'll copy them. And then within a few years, you'll find that the certain parts of the song have completely shifted from one form to another. And is this birds among the same species or just birds? Of- this is birds in the same species. This is wild birds from the same species, mm. which is cool. As an example, I'm going to play male Savannah Sparrow songs from 1982 and 2011 so you can compare how the songs changed over almost 30 years. These recordings are from Professor Williams Research and I'll have the link to these recordings in the show notes. Now, the 1982 song. And now for the 2011 song. Can, can birds learn across species, like songs from different... They can, and they sometimes do, but usually they don't. I see. But something like a mockingbird will learn pretty much anything it hears as long <laughs> as it's salient. So it'll learn, learn like a beeping car alarm or a slamming screen door along with all the other birds in its area. I think I've seen a video... I don't know if it was a mockingbird, but I think I've seen a video mm-hmm. with like David Attenborough mm-hmm. showing the... It was really crazy, like... The bird mimics like a chainsaw sound, like yep. almost identically. Yeah, I think that I, I think I remember that one. I think that one was in Australia. So then, does but, that mean that birds of the same species in different areas will evolve different songs as well? Yeah, and we call them dialects. Oh, of course. Same way we do in humans. So. One of the species I work with is the savannah sparrow, and if you look at the Williams, if you listen to the Williamstown savannah sparrows and the ones from just outside of the U.S., just a little bit north and east of, of Maine, in Canada, you know, you, if you listen to that, you go, "Hey, those are the same species." But then, if you listen more closely, all the ones from Kent Island up there, they have certain things in common that are different from the ones in Williamstown, mm-hmm. and so you know. I don't have a great ear, but I think that if you played me a Kent Island, a bunch of Kent Island versus Williamstown songs, I would be able to tell which one was which pretty much consistently. Um, what would, can you give me an example of like a song feature that we might find in the Williams birds as opposed to? Well, all of the, all of the Savannah Sparrows start off with a series of descending notes and I cannot imitate their songs. <laughs> I can imitate some other songs, but I can't imitate their songs. So a series of high chirps, and then they go into, the high chirps are fairly consistent across the entire species. It's a sort of a series of accelerating high chirps. And then there's a note complex, which may say something about individual identity. It varies a lot between birds. Oh, wow. And then there's a buzz, just sort of bzzz. And the Ken Island birds are bzzz. And the <laughs> Williamstown's there's a bzzz. 
<laughs> and so that's fairly consistent. That the Kent Island Williamstown birds have different buzzes, and then they have a final trill as well. So the structures of the song are consistent across different areas, but how they implement those structures are a little different. I see. I don't know if this is within your realm of research, but with would birds from like, for example, Asia have certain perhaps like signatures as opposed to birds from North America? Well, there's not that many species that are all over the world like that. Mm-hmm. Barn swallows are one, and they are songbirds, but I don't think enough is known about their songs mm. to look at all across the northern hemisphere to see how they're, they're similar and different. I don't know if you saw, but I saw this really funny article the other day about the um, pigeon who they thought like flew from, was it like Australia? And they thought they had to, they thought the pigeon might have had the bird flu. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I didn't see that one I, there was one recently about a, a, sh- a small shorebird that had been banded in Sweden that showed up in Delaware and uh, that was unusual yeah <laughs> <laughs> how do they track where they come from well they put um, metal usually aluminum bands around their legs they're very small mm-hmm. and they have numbers and letters on them mm-hmm. And for this particular bird, somebody with a really high-powered camera lens on a tripod took a good enough picture of the bird's legs <laughs> that they were able to actually read the band. And then they figured out where it had come from. And one of the, one of the numbers on the band was hard to read, but they figured out what it was. And they, they actually found a picture of it in someone's hand being banded. So they had it. Wow. They had it in this island off Sweden and then in Delaware. The person who took the picture is either just a really serious photographer or a really serious bird watcher. Or both. (laughs) (laughs) But I've had Professor Morales sometimes when he's down birding down by, um, you know, where those stone lions are in Williamstown? Mm -hmm. He goes down birding there two or three mornings a week. And every now and then he'll he'll send me a picture of a bird he's taken a picture of, and it's one of the ones I've banded here in Williamstown. Oh. And I can tell who it is because they have different color combinations. So every bird has a slightly different, has four bands total and different color combinations on the legs. I see. And these bands would be for experimental purposes or just track? Yeah, they're, they're, they're always for research purposes. Often they're to track, see where birds are coming from and going. But for the the house finches, a different species that I do in Williamstown, I want to know which which individual is which. I see. So individual identification. The house finches nest on campus buildings, Mm -hmm. and they sing, and they sing to each other, and they sing alone, and they're not very territorial. And it turns out, and Ivy Chiaburi, who is a student who was here a few years ago, did a really good job um, recording them and analyzing the songs. And it turns out they sing with different syntax depending on the social context. And oh. So that's the other line of research that I'm mainly working on. Different types of syntax as in... Um... So if they're singing alone, mm-hmm. they'll sing what we'd call standard syntax. So if they sing syllable A, it's usually called by syllable B and then F and then G and then D. You know, we have a we know that we can pretty much predict, given how he starts, what he's going to sing. Mm-hmm. 
And so if they're singing alone, sitting on the top of the tree, just tootling away, they sing, they sing this very standard syntax. Mm -hmm. And they all have, you know, maybe 30, 40 different syllables they can assemble in different ways. Then if he's singing to a female, he still uses standard, standard syntax, but he just cycles through it several times in a row to make the song longer. Oh, okay. To attract the female? Well, he also sticks in a very high note, so I'm sort of like, I'm ready, I'm ready. <laughs> but then I can sing forever, and I keep doing the same thing. But then if two males are singing at the same time, counter-singing with each other, mm -hmm. At least one of them will do jumbled syntax. So they'll change it. They'll change up the yeah, order. Yeah, they'll just jumble the order. Huh. And we don't know why. And our current working hypothesis is that one of them is trying to jump ahead and sing what the other guy's planning to sing and sing it first. <laughs> That's a really fun idea, actually. So we have to figure out how to test that. Mm. So this is what you're currently working on at Williams? Yeah for that one. Look forward to the research. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I have three sets of questions mm -hmm. that I ask all of my guests. Mm -hmm. And to start. Okay. <laughs> so what do most people get wrong about your field of study? Well, if I count myself as doing cultural evolution, mm -hmm. The thing that I feel people get wrong is this sort of standard thing that a lot of people say, which is, represents a basic misunderstanding of evolution. Mm. They'll say that something's in the DNA of something, <laughs> when actually it's something learned or cultural. Oh. And if it's in your DNA, it's not something that you learned. It's something that you inherited. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's inherent to your biology, but it's very different from something that's cultural. I see. So if you if somebody will say a religious view is in someone's DNA, which I've heard, <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> it's something you learned and something you're attached to, but it's not in your DNA. It's cultural, and it's been transmitted not from your parents necessarily, mm -hmm. and. It could change as much as some people don't want it to. Is there something we might expect to be cultural or behave or learned, but is actually genetic? Well, that's an interesting question. And I'm going to move it a little to the side and say, how do genes and culture interact? Mm -hmm. And this may be an example you've already heard, but if you think about it, genes and culture do interact. They're not completely independent. So think of a society that lives in an area which is good for raising grazing animals. Mm -hmm. So a society that lives in an area that's good for raising grazing animals will often have good access to milk. And if you have good access to milk, culturally, because your family, group, lineage has now has a culture of, of raising grazing animals, you're going to be healthier if you can digest lactose as an adult. <laughs> <laughs> and so lactose intolerance will become much rarer in those societies. I see. And that's genetic. 
lactose intolerance or lack of it is genetic. But in this case, the selection that produces, that favors losing lactose intolerance is cultural. It's, there's no, there's no, nothing else. It's the culture of pastoralism and eating <laughs> milk and milk products, which puts the pressure on the genes. Ah. And so I mean, the, I... that's, that's a classic, simple example, but there's other ways that genes and culture can interact. Is lactose intolerance or... It wouldn't apply to breast milk, correct? No, you lose the tolerance as you get older. Oh, so nice. pretty much everybody starts out with it, the tolerance, but then you lose it if you, if you become lactose intolerant. And there's this crazy group of, I can't remember who it is, but it's a crazy group of white supremacists who try to show that they're white supremacists by chugging milk to demonstrate that they're lactose tolerant. So like, give me a break. <laughs> My father was lactose intolerant. He came yeah. from a German family. I mean, <laughs> you know, all of his ancestors are from Germany. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with anything other than, you know, genes which are more common in pastoralists than they are in people who say eat meat. I see. And so there are pastoralist societies on all continents. And all of those pastoralist societies, you, you tend to find less lactose intolerance. And um, the next question is, what have you changed your mind about recently? And it could be anything, like from the most mm. trivial thing to your life values. <laughs> I think... I value kindness and decency more than I did before COVID-19. Hmm. I mean, everybody values kindness and decency, but I think there's nothing like a pandemic to make it obvious how important that is. I see. So is there an experience or something that made you realize that or just seeing the state of the world? Just Well, I'm just thinking about little things that people can do, you know, putting on a mask when you go to the supermarket. Mm -hmm. It's an act of kindness and decency. It's not, a, you know, it's not an expression of political views or freedom. It's an act of kindness and decency, protecting the people you're around as well as yourself. But primarily the people you're around, because that's really what the mask does, is it protects others. I see. And this is just on a more side note, but I saw that there were a lot of sci scientists who... Oh we're oh trying to explain why masks were more potentially more dangerous. I think there is one were... kind of mask that will, if you cough, break things up into finer particles that can move farther through the air. I think some of those ones that are sort of like sleeves that you pull up and down, mm -hmm. if they're the wrong kind of cloth, it will do that. But oh, okay. the basic idea of the mask is to prevent aerosol clouds from spreading mm -hmm. and carrying the virus with it. I think there was the idea that one particular kind of mask, if it was made of a certain kind of cloth, instead of stopping the aerosol drops, made them finer so they could spread farther. Mm. I see. And those aren't used or in circulation? I think most people now don't use them, yeah. Well, people are suggesting that in the U.S. that maybe we should be wearing a three-layer rather than a two-layer mask right now because of worrying about the new, um, more contagious mm -hmm. 
So we'll see. See. And you definitely touched on this earlier, but what do you think is the most interesting or important discovery in your field in the last few years? Well, if I think of myself as cultural evolution in biology, I think the way we're starting to understand how cultural evolution has some interesting differences from from um, genetic evolution. So for example, if you select on a trait in genetic evolution, you're probably gonna select for, say, if, if we go back to the example from intro biology, you're gonna select for birds with, say, bigger beaks. Mm-hmm. In times when there's bigger seeds, you need bigger beaks to crack open the seeds. And that means that their birds with smaller beaks won't survive as well and the variety will decrease. The variation in the population will decrease because really only the birds with big beaks are going to survive. Mm-hmm. But in cultural evolution, if you select for something that's, you know, say something, a, a piece of song that's longer, say, okay, birds with, who sing a longer, you know, trill are going to do better. Mm-hmm. The next generation, some birds will improvise an even longer trill than was present in the previous generation. (laughs) And so you'll actually increase variation because you don't have to just stick with what was in the population beforehand. You can go beyond it. Mm, I see. And if we think about that in sort of human behavior, certainly is true. You can take something and go beyond what the previous form was and -hmm. improve it just in one round. And then if every, everybody else is stuck with the old one, you have a new one, the variation has increased. Mm-hmm. And so then people are going to shift towards your variant and maybe somebody else will come up with an even better one that's further out. And the whole population is shifting, but variation doesn't decrease. It increases. And so the, how variation is affected by culture versus genetic evolution is, is something that I, I find quite interesting. So basically what I'm saying is in culture variation, we should expect it to shift when things are getting better. <laughs> you should expect, sorry, can you? So, so we should, in, in cultural evolution, when things are shifting to make something work better, say mm-hmm. it's a song to make a song work better, mm-hmm. we should expect variation to increase. And so when we see variation increases, that tells us we're shifting and making things better. I see. (laughs) On the separation between culture and um, genes, so if we take, for example, making certain songs longer. Mm -hmm. That was just um, random. I'm not seeing that. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) It's just an example. (laughs) But to, to follow up on the example, the hypothetical example, um, how, how do you, or how do scientists know if like that tendency to make a song longer is not like in that specific bird's, I guess, genes? Well, you, you know that it has the potential to do that because it did it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you also can look at the previous generation and its father mm-hmm. and say, what were the song lengths in the previous generation? And in this generation, songs have gotten longer. But Mm -hmm. some of the birds are still singing the short songs from the previous generation. It's just that the whole population has shifted towards longer ones and has gone outside the original 
range. So, you know, if we said originally it was between one and two seconds, and now it's been between one and two and a half seconds. So the longest ones have gotten appreciably longer, but the, the range overall is the same. It's just that variation has increased. I see. Do you apply that to how you see changes in human culture? Well, I hope that as I get older and more crotchety about good old days and so on, (laughs) (laughs) I can remember this and think about the fact that variation is a sign of adaptation in cultural traits and that actually going outside what I'm comfortable, people going outside what I'm used to may actually be a good thing. So I have to get used to man buns, for example. <laughs> so I remind myself of that of sometimes when I see something, I, I, I notice I'm starting to be a cranky old person. <laughs> That's how you uh, stay not the cranky old person. <laughs> well, reminding myself that being a cranky old person may, makes me not open to important variation that may be improving things. <laughs> Very scientist mentality. <laughs> I try to. (laughs) I can't say I always succeed. And that is the last question. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. I enjoyed it. And thank you. And your knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope we stay safe. You're getting close to midnight. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I've been sleeping really late anyway, so it's okay. But yeah, thank you again and stay safe. You too. I hope the. Yeah, I noticed that um, in England it's going down, in Great Britain. The. Yeah, it it seemed like it was. The number of new cases per day is going down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if what the um, minister said is entirely accurate because I think he predicted that the new virus, or he announced actually today that it could be 30 to 40% deadlier. But who knows? Well, if 30 to 40% more people get it, (laughs) 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 it's kind of hard to, you know, I'd want to hear somebody like Fauci say that before I was. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. (laughs) But yes, um, stay safe and healthy. You too. And say hi to um, your golden doodle. (laughs) <laughs> yes, Benny is not here right now. Red is here instead. But Benny is, is growing up, and he has surgery this coming week. Oh. He'll be for... neutered. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's for a normal procedure. <laughs> yes, it's a normal procedure, and he's a sweetie, and he'll probably manage perfectly well. And instead of putting those big plastic cones on him, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to find him a pair of red boxer shorts with little white hearts on them. <laughs> so that he doesn't lick his his incision. If you if you take a picture and send it, then um, I can put it up. <laughs> I'm sure everyone wants to see. 